Hello everyone, welcome to The Great Everything, your source for cultural discoveries and philosophical musings here on Anchor. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to the pursuit of knowledge and sharing any discoveries I make along the way with you. Yesterday, I mentioned an article I read in The Guardian by Noah Yuval Harari, the historian and author of bestsellers Sapiens and Homo Deus. And thinking about that article sent me into a bit of a frenzy around Harari's work. So I'm going to dedicate today's show to a few more conversations on some of uh, Harari's theories, which I find very convincing views on how we got here as humanity, what were the major steps that brought us to being where we are and the way we are. But also he has some interesting views on where the evolutionary steps that led us here can lead us in the future. So without further ado, onward with the great everything. actually better off today than we were thousands of years ago. For hundreds of years there's been a debate between two conceptions of the state. On the one hand you have Rousseau with his ideal of the noble savage living in peace until civilization came along and corrupted his nature. And then of course you have Hobbes who thought that before the rise of civilization our lives were poor, nasty, brutish and short. Yes, no matter where you stand on this issue, you'll probably agree that compared to our ancestors, we enjoy a great deal of security and comfort. Much of our current prosperity wouldn't have been possible without the agricultural revolution, when we left behind our foraging ways and we learned to cultivate wheat and rice, and we began to come together in permanent settlements, usually along some riverbank somewhere. Because of this, we tend to think of the agricultural revolution as a major step towards our current standards of living. But historian Noah Yuval Harari has an alternative view. When we began to settle down, we traded a varied, balanced lifestyle with, well, effectively slavery. For instance, agrarian settlements led to much harder work for your average human being. The hunter-gatherers would only work whenever they needed to, Whereas an average farmer would work anything from 50 hours a week upwards for little or no profit because settlements led to more complex societies which in turn lead to more complex hierarchies and hierarchies eventually lead to exploitation. So the whole reason for settling down, more food, led to a surplus that was produced by the farmers but that surplus was actually being taken by your local warlord. The agricultural revolution also led to an increase in disease because of course when more people are living together in cramped conditions that's an ideal environment for viruses to spread. I like to think of Mel Gibson's movie Apocalypto. There's this initial part of the film which is set in the forest with this little tribe living a pretty idyllic lifestyle and then they're moved to the city and you can see how miles away from it the landscape has changed. The forest has been burned down, it's just desolation, it feels apocalyptic. And the closer they get to the city, the more it's disgusting. You see dead animals in the middle of the road, mud, blood, people coughing. It really helps convey this idea that in early times, cities were actually horrible places to live. 
Another byproduct of the agricultural revolution, ironically, is famine. Although we're working to create all this surplus, we became over-dependent on very few food sources like wheat, as opposed to our previous condition as hunter-gatherers, where if something dried up, we would just go and find a different source of food. We'd eat meat. If there was no meat, we'd eat fruits. If there were no fruits, we'd fish. We were far more versatile. But when you're over-dependent on a single source of food, you're at the mercy of climate, of drought, of a bad harvest, so that anything that adversely affects your major food source can cripple your economy. Another thing is, of course, in times of plenty, we'd have these bulging food stores, which would then encourage thievery, which then brought in the requirement for walls and armed guards with all that entailed. And finally, a higher child mortality. Now that we didn't have to carry children around and they weren't such a burden, we didn't have to space them out every four or five years, but we could pop a kid out every year, which in turn led to higher competition for food sources. So this is a quote from Harari. Rather than heralding a new era of easy living, the agricultural revolution left farmers with lives generally more difficult and less satisfying than those of foragers. Hunter-gatherers spent their time in more stimulating and varied ways and were less in danger of starvation and disease. The agricultural revolution certainly enlarged the sum total of food at the disposal of humankind, but the extra food did not translate into a better diet or more leisure. Rather, it translated into population explosions and pampered elites. The average farmer worked harder than the average forager and got a worse diet in return. The agricultural revolution was history's biggest fraud. Of course, there is another side to it, and Harari says that the agricultural revolution did offer us evolutionary success. The problem is that the currency of evolution, in his words, is the spreading of DNA. And the surplus of food certainly led to that population boom. But today we'd say an increase in population is probably not a good thing. In his own words, the legacy of the agricultural revolution was the ability to keep more people alive under worse conditions. Hey Patrick, a uh, quick minute on this whole AI and VR thing. Um, so I don't dislike Yuval, even though I'm part of the contrarian class um, and I'm supposed to hate everyone. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think he's, he's a good thinker and what he's saying um, might happen in hundreds of years, but it's not going to happen anytime soon um, because the only way stuff like that can happen is if you're in a post-scarcity um, economy and we're actually getting into more of a scarcity economy, right? We've got a protein crisis coming up, we've got a water crisis coming up. We've got a computational power crisis coming up. We've got power crises coming up. Um, so I see AI as being a tool to empower people who were previously uneducated or unproductive to become more productive. And then the technology helps them to be able to uh, produce all the stuff that's going to be scarce in the next sort of 50 years. Um, and then if we survive the crisis, the coming crisis, then maybe what Mr. Yuval is saying, then that can happen. Then we're going to have a useless cost. But next sort of 50 to 100 years, yeah, no. Uh, see, uh, Greto. Hey, um, how's it going? Thanks for the call in. So I think you make some really interesting points, and uh, from where I'm standing, they're 
quite convincing too. So I've got a few questions for you because this really isn't my area of expertise. I wish I mean, you know, science and tech, the future generally, not my forte. I'm much better at looking backwards, sadly. But anyway, I got some questions. These upcoming crises that you mentioned, now I was under the impression that at least some of them were being rather successfully tackled. So, for instance, the protein crisis you mentioned. So, some time ago, I visited a uh, insect plant in Toulouse. It was a factory that uh, raised uh, grillons, which is uh, grasshoppers, and uh, I think they're wheat worms in English, uh, verre de farine. Uh, and, you know, I tried it all, it was fine. And uh, from what I understand, this is a highly sustainable source of protein that is becoming ever more popularized in the West. These guys were really quite successful. They were selling their products to uh, high-end restaurants, you know, two, three Michelin-style restaurants, which is actually where I heard of them. I went to one of these in Nice once called Aphrodite, and I had their experimental menu, which was all based on insects, and it was delicious. But also startup companies, like a company here in London that, produces energy bars made out of uh, insect dust. You know, they sort of grind up the grasshoppers and they make um, energy bars and brownies out of them. So how do you think that this highly sustainable uh, source of protein and its uh, growing popularization in uh, Western culture, z, plural, will uh, impact the protein crisis you mentioned? On the water crisis, I actually have a bit more knowledge because I grew up in a place that is heavily affected by drought every year. So every year there would be many weeks, um, usually in the summer of course, where we simply wouldn't have any water, no running water at home. And it didn't matter how rich you were or how poor, you would be affected by this and everyone at some point had to gather their buckets and go queue up at the water fountain somewhere in the middle of the road to get water to be able to bring home and wash their dishes or their asses or whatever else needed washing. So towards the end of my stay there, um, these desalinators used to be more popular. And at the time, it was quite expensive technology. This, uh, these, they were basically big trucks that would be by the sea, suck up the seawater and extract the salt and make the water drinkable. But now I understand since then, because that was the mid to late 90s, that technology is far cheaper and far more readily available. How do you think that will impact the water crisis? And as far as the computing crisis, no idea what that even means. So happy for you to enlighten me there because it's an area of ignorance for me. And uh, as far as the energy crisis is concerned, your favorite person, Elon Musk, is going to take care of that. So I'm not sure what you're worried about, mate. The next few decades will present humanity with some of the toughest challenges we've ever faced. Food and water are becoming more scarce in the face of a booming population and our increasing reliance on technology and AI is putting added pressure on an energy sector that's already finding it hard and expensive to cope with the demands of a globalized economy. So yesterday, I asked a few questions about all this to M from House of M, who is, among other things, a professional crisis consultant. And here's what he had to say. Hey Patrick, thanks so much for the questions. Um, everything that you're saying is on the money. There's already solutions that are in the marketplace which could fix a lot of the crises, maybe not all, but some of them. And to be able to scale it, you use AI to teach people the skills and then you use technology to be able to create that scale. We discussed the so-called protein crisis and I queried whether edible insects, which are a highly sustainable source of protein and which are becoming more popular in the West, could help tackle the problem. 
So I grew up in, in, in Southern Africa, so grubs and grasshoppers and whatever aren't terrible for me, uh, but the typical Western person probably still finds them kind of disgusting. So it's purely a branding thing. So yeah, you put it in a fancy restaurant, you ground it up into a, in, into a yummy brownie, or you get some Kardashians to eat some fucking grasshoppers on TV, done. Right? That's a simple one for the Western world. But your challenge is places like the Islamic world where there's a debate around whether uh, insects are halal or haram. And in those places, if you get huge resistance from a, from a religious point of view that insects cannot be eaten, then what needs to happen is that you need to layer your protein. So you need to use whatever fucking waste that you're taking from the animals themselves, feed it to the bugs, and then feed the bugs to your animals, to your chickens or whatever, your cows and that sort of thing. Um, so you become more efficient around how you produce the protein that people are used to because you can't rebrand it in the non-Western world. Re the water crisis, I mentioned my upbringing in Sicily where every year we suffered droughts and we used expensive desalinating technology to extract drinking water from the sea. Your big challenge isn't necessarily around the technology. I've spent a lot of time in the United Arab Emirates and they desalinate a hell of a lot of water, but that shit is still expensive, right? Um, and they've got enough money to do it. It's cheaper to drink petrol than it is to drink water in Dubai. So like, uh, I don't know about, you know, scalability. But the bigger challenge isn't even around cost, it's around control. Because ideally, what you want with basic services, you want them to be in the private sector, right? Because if they're, they're used by the government, it means that they can buy votes with water, especially, again, in the non-Western world. So yes, if you're in California or you're in fucking Switzerland or whatever, then yeah, it's okay if your government does the water stuff because you've got good political systems that, that the government can't abuse. But in some parts of the world where the government controls the water, and you don't want that. You want it in the private hands, but then the moment you give it to the private companies, you start forming cartels and shit. So the water crisis is the challenge, right? How are you going to fix that control? And I don't know if AI can fix that. And finally, I asked him about the link between energy and computation, two areas I know next to nothing about. Um, I was talking to Momac earlier about the battery usage um, of smartphones and whether Anchor uses uh, too much battery and whatever. The fact that your cell phone runs out of battery is a computational as well as a power thing. Your, your processor is not efficient enough to be able to do what it needs to do without destroying the battery, right? And the battery is not good enough um, to be able to sustain the, the processing power. So that's where your big challenge is. Um, so if it's happening on a, on a small scale in terms of your phone, imagine what's ha happening in server farms and that sort of stuff. Do you have enough power to run those things, to do all that cool stuff, like run the fucking AI? We don't have that, right? We need smarter people to be able to create better processes, and we also need uh, ways to produce energy. And it's not to be stupid shit like solar energy because that's too expensive, too inefficient. It's not going to be wind energy because that's even more inefficient, even more expensive. It might be nuclear if people become, you know, less worried about that sort of stuff. Uh, it could be that whole putting turbines in the water thing, but the maintenance cost on that shit is astronomical, or it has to be something else. But in terms of the way we make electricity right now, it's fucking expensive to do it. And in the way that we make computer chips right now, it's just not efficient enough and it's going to get worse and worse as the processes in our phones and our computers and in our cars become more efficient. Uh, so that one is also a question mark in terms of how do you balance uh, that demand for power. So that was the crisis consultant M from House of M. Thanks M, it's always good to hear from someone about a topic uh, that I don't really know that much about. It's uh, good to be enlightened. So thanks for your inputs and I'm sure people will find something of value in that.
So I read a brilliant article in The Guardian yesterday by the historian Noah Yuval Harari, who wrote Sapiens and Homo Deus. He's one of my favorite thinkers. I'm just going to read you some excerpts. It's about how humanity is going to cope with the increasing functionality of AI. It starts like this. Most jobs that exist today might disappear within decades. As artificial intelligence outperforms humans in more and more tasks, it will replace humans in more and more jobs. Many new professions are likely to appear, virtual world designers for example. But such professions will probably require more creativity and flexibility, and it is unclear whether 40-year-old unemployed taxi drivers or insurance agents will be able to reinvent themselves as virtual world designers. The crucial problem isn't creating new jobs. The crucial problem is creating new jobs that humans perform better than algorithms. Consequently, by 2050, a new class of people might emerge. The useless class. People who are not just unemployed, but unemployable. Given that such technology would also aid the rise of universal basic income, the real problem will then be to keep the masses occupied and content. People must engage in purposeful activities or they go crazy. So what will the useless class do all day? One answer might be computer games. Economically redundant people might spend increasing amounts of time within 3D virtual reality worlds, which would provide them with far more excitement and emotional engagement than the real world outside. This, in fact, is a very old solution. For thousands of years, billions of people have found meaning in playing virtual reality games. In the past, we have called these virtual reality games religions. That's a big part of Harari's general worldview, that religions are just an old form of virtual reality because they're not based, they're not grounded in observable reality or natural laws, but they kind of overlay reality with all their rules and rituals. They are something that we buy into, a shared fiction like currency or limited liability companies. But putting that aside, do you think that that solution, the solution of having us all on universal basic income, with our basic needs provided for, and just hooked up to some entertainment that we consume or some video game for the rest of our lives, is enough to provide meaning? Harari clearly thinks so, but what do you think? This is uh, an important one to think because I think it will be our reality, no pun intended, in the very foreseeable future. We're talking about human evolution and historian Yuval Harari's thesis that the agricultural revolution, the time when around 10,000 BC, we decided to abandon our hunter-gatherer ways to settle in permanent villages and cultivate wheat and other cereals, was actually a fraud perpetrated against humanity because although it led to a population boom by an increase in food sources, it also led to a radical decrease in our quality of living. Now why is this? Because, Harari says, that the currency of evolution is replication of DNA, which means that a species' success from the evolutionary point of view is measured in the number of people or individuals within that species that are around. It's not about quality of life, it's about quantity. And I'm going to read you this excerpt from his book, Sapiens, in which Harari really nails that point down by giving a unique and often quite funny perspective on the agricultural revolution. 
from the point of view of its real victor, wheat. The agricultural revolution was history's biggest fraud. Who was responsible? Neither kings, nor priests, nor merchants. The culprits were a handful of plant species, including wheat, rice, and potatoes. These plants domesticated Homo sapiens, rather than vice versa. Think for a moment about the agricultural revolution from the viewpoint of wheat. 10,000 years ago, wheat was just a wild grass, one of many, confined to a small range in the Middle East. Suddenly, within just a few short millennia, it was growing all over the world. According to the basic evolutionary criteria of survival and reproduction, wheat has become one of the most successful plants in the history of the Earth. In areas such as the Great Plains of North America, where not a single wheat stalk grew 10,000 years ago, you can today walk for hundreds upon hundreds of kilometers without encountering any other plant. Worldwide, wheat covers about 2.25 million square kilometers of the globe's surface, almost 10 times the size of Britain. How did this grass turn from insignificant to ubiquitous? Wheat did it by manipulating Homo sapiens to its advantage. This ape had been living a fairly comfortable life, hunting and gathering until about 10,000 years ago, but then began to invest more and more effort in cultivating wheat. Within a couple of millennia, humans in many parts of the world were doing little from dawn to dusk other than taking care of wheat plants. It wasn't easy. Wheat demanded a lot of it. Wheat didn't like rocks and pebbles, so sapiens broke their backs clearing fields. Wheat didn't like sharing its space, water and nutrients with other plants, so men and women labored long days weeding under the scorching sun. Wheat got sick, so sapiens had to keep a watchout for worms and blight. Wheat was attacked by rabbits and locust swarms, so the farmers built fences and stood guard over the fields. Wheat was thirsty so humans dug irrigation canals or lugged heavy buckets from the well to water it. Sapiens even collected animal feces to nourish the ground in which wheat grew. The body of Homo sapiens had not evolved for such tasks. It was adapted to climbing apple trees and running after gazelles, not to clearing rocks and carrying water buckets. Human spines, knees, necks and arches paid the price. Studies of ancient skeletons indicate that the transition to agriculture brought about a plethora of ailments such as slip discs, arthritis and hernias. Moreover, the new agricultural tasks demanded so much time that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields. This completely changed their way of life. We did not domesticate wheat. It domesticated us. The word domesticate comes from the Latin domus, which means house. Who's the one living in a house? Not the wheat. It's the sapiens.